Well, go ahead and be opening up your Bibles to 1 Peter, the book of 1 Peter. So we're going to continue to march through this. Um, we'll be finishing up the second part of what we began last week in the section of 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 17 through 21. I do have a slight confession to make that... Uh, you, know, you, you always kind of in, have, a, have a certain number of pages uh, in terms of sermon notes, and that roughly gauges where I'll be and how much time it will take. As you know, I'm not always successful at that. But nonetheless, I thought I was in range, and then I realized that I had the wrong format, uh, not the narrow, uh, narrow margins for the sermon notes. So it actually was much longer than I thought. Uh, so you'll have to help me to edit as I go this morning. Because there's so much here, there's such a rich passage, so full of glory, so much of the foundational truths of the gospel and our hope in Christ. Um, It would be easy to get lost here and to take months rather than just a couple of weeks because of uh, all that the Spirit of God has laid before us. But we will try to finish this up uh, this morning. I want to introduce our passage this morning, and we'll be focusing on verses 18 through 21 with this, this reminder is that there's always been, through the history of the church, uh, two errors related to grace. And those two errors are legalism and licentiousness. Legalism is an approach to grace that says that though God has completely removed the guilt and the condemnation of sin, that it needs to be attended with our rigid and disciplined approach to holiness whereby we must set a hedge about all of the temptations of the world, a hedge about our lives, and we must be very scrupulous in following the rules that we might concoct that are to reflect the holiness that God has called us to. That's, that's one way to look at legalism. Another is to, to say that legalism is really an approach to the Christian life, to grace and to the gospel that seeks to accomplish sanctification merely by or primarily by externals. Don't do this. Do do this. Don't do that. And often within legalism, applications of Scripture are elevated to the level of righteousness. Are elevated to the level of righteousness. And you get into the situation that the Pharisees got into that Jesus had to condemn in first century Christianity by your rules, your traditions, you have invalidated the word of God. You've gone beyond even what God has said in your supposed attempt for holiness. Another wrong reaction to grace is licentiousness. And that is simply to say that because God's grace is so free, so complete, so settled, that sin really becomes not that big of a deal. Uh, If you take it to its utmost, it's even to say that the magnitude of our sin just magnifies the grace of God. So therefore, we shouldn't be too concerned about sin because then God's grace is just made, put more on display in our lives. And in, in, in more common form, at least in contemporary Christianity, it teaches that there's no reason for a believer really to fear sinning or to fear displeasing God because he's already put all of our punishment on Christ. So when God sees us, he doesn't see sin. He sees his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He only sees righteousness. And the problem with that, as it is with both of these, is that there is an element of truth to it. But there's also an element of diversion from the truth that leads into great error, both theologically and practically. Both of these misunderstand and pervert grace. In this way, legalism 
takes away that work, inner work of the Holy Spirit, whereby our lives are governed not by rules, but by love for Jesus Christ, a humble love for Jesus Christ, a self-awareness of our own sin and need to grace that causes us to act charitably towards others, graciously toward others. Realizing that while discipline is an important part of the Christian life, it's indeed necessary. That discipline itself is not what sanctifies, but our hearts humbly yielded to the Lord in every area of our thoughts, attitudes, and so forth. Licentiousness errs in this way. It fails to understand that sin is sin and that grace is not simply to release us from the penalty of our sin, but it is also to conform us to the image of Christ. And God disciplines His children for unrepentant sin. He brings conviction into our lives. Even as we looked last week, sometimes He even takes the lives, the physical life of His children who aren't dealing with sin. That's rather extreme and yet that's what He does. So grace requires discipline, but it is a discipline born of a humble love for Christ. And grace certainly reminds us that our acceptance before God is totally in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. But that is then to make us hate sin more, not less. Because of the greatness of redemption. Now it's to this latter point that Peter is going to focus our attention this morning. And in this section, it really could be summarized in this way, the idea of verses 17 through 21, that the fear of God is essential to holiness and a mark of faith in God as our Father and Christ as our Redeemer. Now, last week first, we looked at fear and the fatherhood of God. And that's in the exhortation in verse 17 that we are to conduct ourselves in fear during the time of our stay on earth. This morning we'll consider the final two points, fear and God's glory in Christ, the Redeemer, and fear and faith in God. Fear and God's glory in God and Christ, the Redeemer, and the glory of God in Christ, our Redeemer, and fear and faith in God. So let me read the passage, and then I'll briefly review what we covered last week, and then we'll get to the rest of it. So read with me, beginning in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 17 through 21. If you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ." For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Tremendous, tremendous passage. And Peter begins this section for us by reminding us that... We address God as Father because in Christ we are adopted as sons. That's the idea. He means here Father. Father is uh, the, the, the outcry of those who are redeemed, who cry out, Abba, Father, in Christ. And yet, to call God Father is not merely a sentimental idea or a sentimental term. It is to recognize as well His transcendent glory And he is father who is not only redeemed, but he is a father who is an impartial judge. 
Now the fear here, then just review from last week briefly, the fear here then has the idea of terror, fear of punishment, calamity, but also in reference to God's people, it has the primary idea of reverence, of awe, of worship, of love for God, of delight in God, of trust in the goodness of God. And therefore, in the Old Testament, the fear of the Lord and the fear of God was at the center of Old Testament spirituality. Old Testament saints were marked by their fear of God. Those who fear God throughout the Old Testament are those who have integrity, are those who have faith, are those who are marked by obedience, have courage in trials, who know His loving kindness and know the inner fellowship of the covenant and have hope in God. The righteous Old Testament saint who feared God longed actually for God's judgment as a vindication of their own integrity, as a vindication of what is righteous, as a vindication of what upheld the glory of God. As a matter of fact, Psalm 7, 8 says this, The Lord judges the peoples, vindicate me, O Lord, according to my righteousness. Now Peter is pulling from this Old Testament foundation, this reality of spirituality that has as a cornerstone the fear of God and he brings it in to apply it to us, the church. And he introduced this previously in verse 16 by quoting from the law in Leviticus, you shall be holy for I am holy. You shall be holy for I am holy. And now he joins to this command the need to fear him whom we call father. And why are we to fear him? Well, he says, again, reviewing, that he is the one who impartially judges according to each one's work. He is an impartial judge. He is no favorer of persons. He, he judges according to one standard, and that is his holiness, his righteousness, his word. He impartially judges according to each one's work. In other words, the singular work there is really capturing uh, the idea of the totality of one's life, what it produces, the fruit of one's life, falls under this scrutinizing judgment of God. Now the question here that we feel then is, is the tension of, if we have the spirit of the Son by which we cry out, Abba, Father... And we come to him as a loving father who has, in his son, atoned for our sins, invited us into his presence. How then do we put that alongside the fear of God? How do we both love him and trust him and fear him at the same time? How do we understand that as believers? Well, let me give you a few thoughts. One, again, this is just a reminder. Fear is the right response simply to being a human being who approaches a God who has all divine authority to judge men. Moses, or Abraham called him the judge of all the earth. The judge of all of the earth. He is the judge who will do right. James 4.12 says that there is one lawgiver and one judge, namely God. He is the one who has all judgment over all men and all of those who bear his image. And this is a reason then for us to have a healthy respect and fear that the one we approach is not one to be trifled with. Particularly if you stand outside of Christ, then fear and fear of judgment is in fact a right response to have. It's the most sane response to have. It would be insane to be outside of Christ and to not fear the consequences of sin. 
So it's a right human response simply to God's transcendent glory as the judge of all men. Number two, it is the right response to him who even for his own children holds them yet accountable to sin. Now in a broad picture, the nation of Israel knew God's judgment even though he was their covenant God. He judged Israel in captivity and repeatedly, we know. He judged even David, his servant, when he sinned. He judged in the New Testament, Ananias and Sapphira, when they came to the Lord falsely and with a lie. He put them to death and great fear, it says, fell over all the people. And Hebrews 12 reminds us as a loving father, he disciplines us for our sin. And so there is a proper reason to fear God because he is the one who disciplines for sin. And we have remaining sin, and so therefore we should fear sin and unrepentant sin, particularly as a cause for inviting God's discipline into our life. There's a third reason. The fear of a believer is, however, a unique fear. It's not a fear that judges, that fears the judgment of eternal condemnation. That has been borne by Christ. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He himself has bore our sins in his body on the cross, Peter will tell us later in his epistle. However, there is here as well a reminder that, and, and actually a warning, that anyone who professes the name of Christ, who calls on God as Father, who claims to be one of his own, is right to understand that their life and the proof and the genuineness of faith will be shown to be real or false based on what your life produces. So the false believer with no fruit or evidence of salvation should fear and not take a false comfort in merely external profession. Jesus said this in Matthew seven twenty one. Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we do these things in your name? And he'll say, depart from me. I never knew you. You workers of lawlessness, he says. You workers of lawlessness. So there's a warning inherent here too. To those who call on God as Father, realize that your life must produce the fruit of one who is truly a child of God. For the true believer, however, who does have works, it, wor- it works itself out in this way. That th- we fear dishonoring Christ and being ashamed before Him at the judgment seat. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians, and you're well familiar with this, that he does all things in his life to be pleasing to God. He says in verse 9, Therefore we have also as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. Listen, this is the ground of the reason. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. So even for this great apostle of Christ... The fear of the Lord and knowing that his life was accountable to God caused him to want to live a life that was pleasing to God, to live with a clear conscience before God. If you know Christ and you know God, one reason that you fear sin in light of everything else that has been said is because you do not want to be ashamed when you stand before him. You do not want to be ashamed for sin. You want to present to him a life that is to his glory. So the true and obedient believer who knows his judgment has been taken by Christ longs to then to be with him and to present to him a life that is righteous. Let me just give you one more verse and we're going to move, move on to the next point. But listen to Paul, uh, Timothy's words 
in Second uh, Timothy four eight. Just listen. Now he's saying this at the end of his life, knowing that he had a very short time. But he says this. What did he say at the end? This one who lived to please God. He said, "I have fought the good fight. I finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous Judge." will award to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who has loved, who have loved his appearing. That is, that is a fleshing out here of what Peter is saying. There was a healthy fear of sin, knowing that his life would be accountable to God. It moved him to worship God, to live a life that was pleasing to God, so that at the end of his life, he could know that the judgment for his sin was fully left on Christ, and now he was able to stand before him eagerly and eagerly waiting to stand before him who is the judge of all men, having presenting to him a life that was faithful, faithful to the end. Now, so one, the first reason then that Peter gives here for holiness is that is to fear God, is to fear God who is the impartial judge of all men's works. The second reason here that he gives, and really the most powerful reason, is then because also of his redemption, because of the glory and the greatness of the salvation we've received in Christ. And this, this really is the most powerful motivation and the one that most deeply stirs the affections of a true believer. The greatest motivation, the greatest reason to fear God, the greatest reason to pursue holiness is because of the great cost of our redemption. And so note secondly here, fear and the glory of Christ the Redeemer. This is verses 18 through 20. First part of verse 20. Why should we fear? Knowing that you were redeemed with, not, with per, not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. Why should we fear God? Because of the great cost and the great glory of our Redeemer. The reality of redemption, of being redeemed, is central to our understanding of the gospel and self-identity, right? We sing the song, redeemed, redeemed, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. That's who we are. We are the ones who have been redeemed. And the, the key idea at the heart of redemption is this. It is the reality of a price to be paid. In other words, it's the concept of atonement. Redemption doesn't happen without a price being paid, without an atonement being made. And the idea of redemption is that of being ransomed, ransomed and released from bondage. Let's notice first here then just the amazing reality of redemption. And noticing this, That redemption is completely God's doing. It's completely God's doing. Look at what he says. Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life, but with precious blood. You were not redeemed. That idea there, that term there, redeemed, just because this is important to the point is a passive. In other words, he's saying you are the redeemed. The idea that it's in a passive voice simply means this. It's something that God did for you. You weren't redeemed by your own self, by anything you offered to God. You were redeemed by an act of God's kindness to you. 
Your redemption is not your own doing. And this is important. It stands apart, your redemption. If you are here and you've been redeemed by Christ, it stands apart, actually even in contrast to anything that your life has ever produced of its own. Stated negatively, he says here, you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold, an imagery that he'll use it and has used at other places. As a matter of fact, he says your faith in verse 7 being more precious than gold, which is perishable. The idea is simply this. You weren't redeemed by anything of this world. All of the things of this world are destined to perish. They are futile in providing redemption. That is something that God himself must do. Redemption is completely the work then of God. Completely the work of God. This harkens back to the very opening of the epistle. That you, who's he writing to? He's writing to those who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. Who have been born again, caused to be born again by the work of the Father. And here you are those who have been redeemed because God has redeemed you. From beginning to end then, it is the work of God. It is the work of God. And it really harkens back then, the imagery here, because Peter is pulling on a lot of Old Testament, as you've noticed and we've mentioned. It harkens back to the imagery of the Exodus. The imagery of the Exodus. When God redeemed his old covenant people from the bondage that they were in in Egypt, the Exodus is for the Old Testament saints what the New Testament is, or the cross is for the New Testament saint. It is a picture of deliverance, a deliverance from bondage. Exodus 6, 6, just listen. He says this, Say therefore to the sons of Israel, I am the Lord, I will bring you out from under the burden of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from their bondage. I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. He says later in Exodus 15, 13, In your loving kindness you have led the people whom you have redeemed. In your strength you have guided them to your holy habitation. And it is that redemption of God, that redemption by his loving kindness, that redemption by his faithfulness to his word, that was the identity of the nation of Israel. They are the people who serve the God who redeemed them from their bondage. And so it is here. You are a people who have been redeemed, not from a nation, not from slavery in, a, in, in this world, But you have been redeemed from sin. You have been redeemed from sin. Of course, he makes that clear in verse 19 because your redemption came from the precious blood of Christ. Your redemption and the price of your redemption was the cost of something far more than this world could offer, far more than even the sacrificial system could offer, but only what God provided. So really the idea here more that he's pulling from is not only the exodus from Egypt, but you have the idea of redemption that was pictured in the entire sacrificial system that he established after he brought them out of the nation of Egypt. The idea is this. The idea in this point is that man, you and I are helplessly in bondage to sin under condemnation without the resources or even the proper desire to be freed from sin to serve God. That is our condition. Redemption is something then that God accomplishes for us. It's something that he accomplishes for us. 
So what is the bondage then that we're freed from? What is that bondage that we're freed from? He says, secondly here, the redemption is completely God's work. But secondly, you were redeemed from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers. You were redeemed from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers. Remember, he's speaking to believers. If you speak of redemption uh, to some, many unbelievers who have no sense of their being in bondage, much like Jesus when he spoke to the Jews and he says, the truth will set you free. And they're like, free from what? Free from what? Jesus is like, freed from your sin, ultimately. The one who commits sin is the slave to sin. It's not Rome that they needed to worry about. It was their own sin. But if you don't understand that, if you don't believe that, if you don't feel that within yourself, then the idea of redemption has no particular power or glory. It has no particular wonder to it. Now, on the other hand, some, even who are unbelievers, might feel enslaved and want redemption, a kind of redemption. Some are enslaved to drugs, alcohol, power, sex, or anything else that may make them feel that they're being controlled by something else. That's why we have Alcohols Anonymous and other programs. They might feel, in fact, a kind of bondage that they want to be freed from, but that isn't the kind of freedom that he's offering here either, the kind of redemption that he is exalting here. Oh, sure, if someone is redeemed from their sin, what will follow is a freedom from other things. But those aren't primary, those are secondary. The redemption here is the redemption that God accomplished in Christ. And it's redemption from something much deeper and more sinister than even the most enslaving external reality in this life. In other words, drugs or whatever. So what does he refreed us from? Your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers. Now, at first glance, when you read that statement, it could appear almost as if God is saying that the purpose of redemption is to free you from a purposeless life. This vain life, this vain way of life that you inherited from your forefathers. And in that case, we would have, you know, certain books in the back emphasizing how we can have purpose in our life, a purpose-driven life, we could even title one. And it could appear almost that Peter is justifying that kind of thinking, that you were were redeemed from a pointless, empty kind of life without Christ. Now this phrase, the way of life, is usually translated behavior, even as it was, if you notice in verse 15, same term, when he says be holy in all of your behavior, same root term, same idea in verse 17, conduct yourselves and fear during the time of your stay on earth and in other places. The way of life or behavior is identifying that kind of life that stands in conflict with the new. It's the kind of life that stands in conflict with the new life in Christ, with those who have been born again. In other words, or you could say this then, it's a way of life that lacked the fear of the Lord, that lacked holiness that lacked trust and hope in Christ. And to whatever degree in which your life manifested and our lives manifested sin, the more central issue here is that in whatever we did before coming to Christ, it was a life that was marked by unbelief. Unbelief. 
He says here it was inherited, the kind of life inherited from your ancestors. Now let me just make a note here. When you read through that at first, you might think that this is, then he's speaking of Jews. But actually it moves in the other direction. He's referring here to Gentiles. Gentiles, the futile way of life that was marked by these pagan Gentile believers. It's not likely a reference to the Jews, for ancestors or forefathers in Jewish language had the responsibility to teach them to fear God. That would be inconsistent with what he's saying here. It was to follow the Lord, to obey Him, to learn of Him. Now here he's speaking to Gentiles, those who were pulled out of the pagan lifestyle which characterized them before they came to a saving knowledge of Christ. You were redeemed from this futile way of life. Now when he says, again, when he mentions by silver or gold, he could mean a couple of things there. It could mean silver or gold in in terms of just a, a comprehensive way of looking of anything of this world. Nothing of this world had value. It could be speaking of the way that Uh, They thought redemption could be bought in a pagan way of thinking by offering gifts to deities. It could mean those things. It could also refer simply to the idolatry that characterized much of the ancient paganism and false religion of that world. In the other case, Peter is saying here that whatever characterized your life, it was something that was empty and it was unable to bring the redemption that you have received in Christ. And God has taken you out of what was valueless and brought you into what is the most glorious reality of salvation. He's essentially identifying the emptiness of whatever traditions, religious or otherwise, that is handed down within a family through lines of generations. We know that. We're characterized by our family, the influence of our family. If somebody grew up in an academic kind of world that sought to raise up every intellectual argument against the truth of Christ, then somebody's going to inherit that way of life. And they're going to inherit that kind of futility. And they might grow to be a great academic according to the world's standards, but yet it is all emptiness, worthlessness, and nothingness. It could be if somebody grew up in a home of Buddhism then they're going to carry that on from one generation to the next to next. If somebody grew up a Roman Catholic, they're going to carry that on from next to next to next. And he's saying, whatever it is that characterized your life of unbelief that was brought down to you by what you learned in this world, you were redeemed from that. You were redeemed from that. And he describes any kind of life outside of Christ as futile. Futile. This is a Powerful description and really quite piercing. Uh, In classic Greek literature, it had the idea of deceptive appearances. It's used a lot in the Greek version of the Old Testament, the Septuagint. In Ecclesiastes, it's the term used that we're familiar with. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. It is a life that is lived, even though it might be fruitful and glorious in human terms, that yet perishes with no real value. Religiously, it's a term often used of idolatry worship. It's used of everything that is outside of Christ. 
In 1 Corinthians 3.20, he says this, using the same term. The Lord knows the reasoning of the wise, that they are useless. Everything that does not fall into line with the truth of God in Christ is worthless. He's saying you've been redeemed from that. You've been redeemed from that kind of vanity. You've been taken out of a life of nothingness and brought into a life that has eternal purpose in Christ. As a matter of fact, it is the knowledge of this that the Spirit of God uses to awaken many uh, to the gospel. I knew in my own life, I knew uh, Trish in her life, and this is true of many of you, when the Spirit of God began to stir in you to evaluate your life, you realized how empty it was, how pointless the things of the world were without any eternal value. So it was for me, and again, as many of you, and God brought me to that point of salvation, there was a deep sense of the futility of everything, a sense of not caring whether you lived or died because everything seemed pointless. One of the most striking memories that I personally have of being saved was how all of a sudden everything made sense and had a reason for being there. That was a, that was a tremendous transformation internally for me, and I know for many of you. And that's the idea here, is that you were redeemed out of these things that had no lasting value. They had no lasting value. They're even the things of which when you got saved, you're now ashamed, according to Romans 6.21. So many people spend their lives chasing after the things they would gladly give up at the end of it. And spend their whole lives neglecting the things that are the most precious and they wish they had at the end of it. And that's what he's talking about here. That's the kind of thing you were saved from. And what one wants at the end of their days, what one wants when lying on that bed, knowing that death lies right before them, in the mystery of what is on the other side of this world, what they would really want with even an ounce of awareness of reality is this, a clear conscience before God. Clear conscience before God. A hope beyond the grave. A certainty of forgiveness of sin. But what he's saying here is even more than that. It's even more than that. You've been redeemed from a futile way of life. Not only an emptiness or a life without God that has no value in it. No eternal purpose. Nothing beyond the immediate. But this. You've been redeemed from a life that was only capable of bringing and provoking the judgment of God. The judgment of God. It's not merely that it was a wasted life, that it was a vain life. It was a life that produced bad fruits and evil works. That's the idea of it. As a matter of fact, he just said that in verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lust which were yours in your ignorance when you had no knowledge of God. Again, ignorance, lust, wanton lust is what characterized a life inherited from your forefathers. It was a life that was marked by evil deeds. It was a life that could be summed up in this way, children of wrath, children of wrath. You've been redeemed from that, not only from futility, but you've been redeemed from eternal judgment, from dead works. From evil works. And indeed, this judgment is what's 
coming. He says in verse 17, for it's time for judgment of chapter 4 to begin with the... For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. If it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? What you inherited was a life who did not obey the gospel of God. It has as its end not merely meaningless, but judgment, perdition, eternal. Now, there's more to say about that, but it's the same idea. He uses actually that same term in Romans 1.21 when he speaks about the waywardness and the false worship of the world, he says this. Let me just read it. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile. There's our word. In their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened, professing to be wise, they became fools. God gave them over to the lust of their hearts and purity and so forth. And that begins that section with the wrath of God. So what have you been redeemed from? He says, you've been redeemed By the sovereign work of God, you contributed nothing but your sin. You've been redeemed from whatever pattern of your life that was marked in your unbelief that you inherited from those who went before you. Not only a purposelessness and meaninglessness, but also you've been rescued from the delight or the judgment of God that is coming. And you've been redeemed from one master, from one kind of slavery, a slavery to sin... To be a slave of Christ, who is the Lord. Now, you might ask when you hear that, what's the value of being redeemed from the former manner of life, from the slavery that came because of sin, if in fact I'm only to be a slave of another? What value is that? If I'm going to be a slave either way, and I submit to you that you are a slave either way, whether you want to be or not, either of sin or of righteousness, what is the value, what is the motivation to be freed from slavery to sin to only become a slave of Christ? Well, let me just most simply state this, because one master destroys, one master kills. The enslaving life of the sinner, those who live here apart from Christ, is a life that will end in death. The wages of sin is death. It's a life, it's a master that only has as your end death, misery, vanity, deception, darkness, and ends in destruction. But slavery to Christ, to be purchased by Christ, to be redeemed from the slave market of sin, to become a slave of Him who is Lord of the universe, you've been, is to be enslaved to Him who is good, who works in your life joy, eternal purpose, truth, light. And ends in your eternal happiness. So you have been redeemed, if you know Christ, from everything that is vanity in this world. And you've been redeemed to participate in that which is the most glorious. Namely, the kingdom of God in Christ and forgiveness of sin. And note a third part under this redemption. That this redemption then came at the inestimable cost of Christ's death. He says you've been redeemed. The price of this redemption is the provision of God, which was the precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. You've been redeemed with precious blood. You've been redeemed with the blood of Christ. The redemption that God accomplished on our behalf then, emphasizing what was stated earlier, was not from anything this world could produce. The world altogether, if you took all of the riches and the glory of the world and you bound it in one sacrifice, it could not atone 
for one sin. It couldn't atone for anything. If you were a Jew and you took all of the animal sacrifices, all of the religious deeds, all of the external conformity to the law of God, and you offered it to God as a good work, it could accomplish nothing. It would not atone for one sin. In fact, it would need atonement. If you took all of the relative human good that man could offer, every sacrifice, every deed of honesty, every act of kindness, every work of religious devotion, and you collected it all together of all humanity, of all time, from the fall, and you offered it to God, it could not atone for one sin. That's the idea. It's it's a hopeless condition apart from God's provision. In other words, you were redeemed with nothing that you can offer, but with what God offered on our behalf. And this is the glory of our redemption. Precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless. That's why Christ came. He came to redeem us from our sin. Jesus said himself in Matthew 20, 28, you know this well, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Peter's going to say even later, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. In chapter 3, he tells us again, for Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. That he might bring us to God. Our redemption then came at a great and a precious cost. The cost of of Christ, his blood. Now what is meant here? Precious blood. Precious blood. Now I'm not going to get into this. I'm only going to mention it, but I will at least mention it. There's so much of the silly things that sometimes the church of God can argue about. And one of those has been this, the idea of the blood of Christ. The blood of Christ. And the conflict has mainly come about this. To say we were redeemed with precious blood, some would hold that blood is quite literally and very specifically and indeed exclusively a reference to the physical substance of Christ's blood. And to deny that is to, in effect, deny the atoning work of Christ. The other says blood isn't so much concerned about the physical substance, but with the death of Christ, which was, in fact, an atoning death on behalf of his people. And, of course, that is how Scripture uses it. We won't go through. I have a whole list of verses here. But namely to say, you can trace it on your own. Blood refers to many things. It can refer to the color of red. It can refer to something that's symbolic, such as this cup is the covenant in my blood. The idea is not the physical substance, but the death of Christ on behalf of his people. That's the idea. Precious blood. Yes, it's blood that was spilt. Yes, it was blood that flowed out of his side along with water. Yes, there was the reality of his blood that flowed down the cross. But what that blood represented was his violent death. His violent death. His violent atoning death. His violent death as an atonement for our sin. With precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless. 
It was the payment price for our sin was death. That was the price required for human sin. Death. What God offered as a payment for our sin was death. The death of the Son. The death of Christ. The lamb under the Old Testament. There were many animal sacrifices. But all of these sacrifices symbolized, of course, and were prophetic in and of themselves of what God would provide, that this innocent creature, living creature, over whom I have confessed my sin and placed my hands must die so that I may approach God and be forgiven. Of course, the blood of bulls and goats could never do anything of themselves. They're not moral creatures. They are merely creatures that go away with death. But they anticipated that sacrifice that would come, which is Christ. And so it was Christ who was the Lamb. John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And it was precious blood. Precious blood has the idea of honor, value, respect. It's a a very, very powerful word here. Precious blood as of a lamb. It wasn't merely death. It was the death of one whose value in his life was of inestimable worth such that his death would atone not merely for the sin of one other man, but for all of humanity. But for all of humanity who would trust in him. Sufficient for all. Just as a contrast, you'll me note in Matthew 27, 6, it's the same word that speaks of the 30 pieces of silver that the Pharisees paid for him to be betrayed. In other words, they valued his death and his life. Not only were they cause of it, it was worth to them no more than a few pieces of silver that they could lose. But here, in God's sight, he calls it precious blood. Precious blood. Matter of fact, he says in verse 7 of chapter 2, this precious value, namely of Christ, is for you who believe. It's precious in the sight of those whose eyes have been opened to behold the glory of God. It's precious blood by which God purchased His people through His Son that stands as the foundation of His command and His ownership of us. He says in 1 Corinthians 6.20, You have been bought with a price. That's our word there. You have been bought with with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. Now I want to make a footnote here, quickly. And the footnote is this. You have been redeemed with precious blood, as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Notice that the preciousness here on the cost of redemption is on Christ. We hear ad agnosium sometimes in popular Christianity that the death of Christ points us to consider our great value before God. We're so valuable that Christ would die for us. We're so valuable, so precious in His sight, that God would die for us. He'd even send His own Son. As if the great motivation in the eternal mind of God in the giving of His Son was to declare our value. 
That's turning on the head what is the entire gospel and what Peter is saying here. We rejoice in the love that God has shown us. We have value as those who are made in the image of God and the value there is being made in God's image. But the preciousness and the glory of the gospel is that God spilt the blood of his own son to redeem a people for his own glory. Christ did not long in John 17 for people to gaze on their own glory and value before God, but his glory as redeemer. That they may behold my glory, the glory which you have given me before the foundation of the world because you loved me before the foundation of the world. He offered up his life. Jesus described his atoning death in this way, that he was going to glorify the Father. Glorify the Father. That doesn't make his salvation and grace more distant. It doesn't make his salvation and grace less valuable in our hearts if we understand that. It actually makes it more precious and wells up in the heart of God's children a deep and abiding worship in him who has shown such love and grace. It's Godward directed. It's the greatness of his sacrifice to us who were in bondage to sin. It is that we might forever sing the praises of his eternal value and be humbled by him who would show such grace. It shows his value. It was his precious blood, his grace, his glory, his mercy. And so the question is, And where Peter is driving is, does the reality of the preciousness of Christ's death for you, does the value of Christ's death, the value of your atonement, the cost of your redemption, cause you to hate sin? Hate sin. Is the love of Christ for what he has done work stronger in you than the love of this world? And that's what he's going to. I mean, that's where he's pointing to. Fear him. You've been redeemed from this way of life that was totally characterized by this world. And you've been redeemed to hope for the life you have in Christ and the world and the kingdom that is to come. And the cost of that redemption was the precious blood of Christ. While there are many incentives to obedience and the hatred of sin, the greatest at the base of them all for a true believer is love for Christ, is love for the Father and sending the Son. Yes, there is fear of discipline. Yes, that's proper. We should fear sinning. But the greatest motivation is love for Him who spilled precious blood for our redemption. It's because you don't want to offend Him who has shown you such grace. That's the motivation for holiness. Remember we said before, holiness is about what you love. It's about what you love. And so this is precious blood that he describes as unblemished and spotless. Let me just make these last points quickly. It's the innocent and the holy blood of Christ. Unblemished and spotless, he describes it. It's not simply innocence or blamelessness in the sense of not being guilty of crimes charged. There's plenty of innocent people who have been put to death wrongly. That's not the idea here. The significance of this goes much deeper. He was the sacrifice who was blameless and spotless by his own nature. By his own nature. 
He wasn't simply unblemished and spotless in the sense of that he didn't commit the crimes for which he was punished. He was unblemished and spotless in his own person as the one who would be our sacrifice. Now this is made clear in several ways, but just notice unblemished and spotless. Unblemished was a common word in the Old Testament to speak of the animal sacrifices that came, but not the term spotless. That's something that could apply only to Christ. It speaks here of a moral perfection. A moral perfection. He was without blemish in every way. Hebrews 7 says this. He's able to save forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. It was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He was a son, he says at the end of that, Hebrews 7, 28, made perfect forever. Perfect forever is our sacrifice. So this is, this is the striking pointer here to the glory of Christ as the incarnate son, holy and blameless. He takes that a little further. Let's notice this last point. That the glory of God in Christ is seen not only in the holiness of his person, but in the eternal purpose that God foreordained in him. Look at verse 20. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. God's purpose in redeeming us as fallen sinners was not a response to the fall of man into sin. It was encompassed within the eternal purpose of God in creating the world and placing man in it as his image bearers. He works all things after the counsel of his will, which is the summing up of all things, Ephesians 1.11, in Christ, in Christ Jesus. The very purpose of God in creating was ultimately that he would redeem, if you know him, you from your sin into fellowship with himself through the Son. Christ as the Lamb of God, the sacrifice that would take away the sin of the world, was not a divine afterthought or simply a response to human sin. It was crucial to his very act of creation. That was the end of it. Knowing that man would fall. Knowing that he would redeem them through the Son. This is really quite amazing. Before the foundation of the world then speaks of that which was in the mind and purpose of God before he brought anything into existence. This is pre-Genesis 1 or 2. And without getting into a discussion related to the order of divine decrees, which is obviously not our purpose, what can be said absolutely is this, that God the Father in love and in counsel with the eternal Son determined to bring some of his fallen image bearers into the most intimate fellowship with himself through Christ. The Son agreed to take on humanity and the person of Christ to offer himself as a sacrifice for sin the sin of those given to him to redeem them from their bondage and to be their source of eternal life and eternal blessing. And the Spirit agreed to conceive Christ in the womb of Mary, sustain and empower him in his humanity and give his people life through him. So Christ was foreknown in all that God intended to accomplish in Christ before the foundation of the world but has appeared for the sake of you. 
who through him are believers in God. You stand here redeemed. You stand within the eternal purposes of God. He saved us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity, but now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And the end of it, he says, is that our faith and hope are in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory. And gave him glory. It is the work of the Father the work of the Son, and the work of the Spirit. Here he puts emphasis on the work of the Father because within the divine relations of the Godhead, the Father is the one who willed salvation, who adopted. And the emphasis here is on Christ's work in his humanity, the Son's work in his incarnation. He is the one who has appeared, appeared, eternally with the Father, but appeared in the person of Christ and the taking on of humanity that he might redeem us. And so through Christ, through the promise that goes all the way back to the Old Testament that he's already mentioned, in verse 10, the salvation of the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you now has been realized in Christ and our faith is in God. And not only is our faith in God Not only is our hope in God, not only is our life in God through Christ, but He is the summation of all that is promised to us in the gospel, namely, to be reconciled to Him. Well, let's go ahead and pray. And then, again, as we're getting used to this prayer, we'll act as the benediction. And so we'll be dismissed afterwards. Father, thank You for the great promises that You've given to us in Christ. Thank You that... Our redemption, though a task impossible for us, was not impossible for you. Thank you that you have provided an atonement for our sin. Thank you that you have given us life in your Son. You've given us every reason to have faith and hope. And you have furnished proof to all men that this that your saving work and your judging work is accomplished through Christ, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Pray that you would work in us who know you, a deep and abiding longing for that coming day, then we will be reconciled to you in whom we've trusted and see the full glory, your full glory, O Christ. And for those who don't know you, I pray that you would work in them that sense of the futility and the emptiness of life without you, O Christ. Whatever it is that holds them back, will you grant them the grace to turn and trust in you and to give up their life that they might gain yours. To this end, we pray in your matchless name, our Lord Jesus. Amen. So you are